Hey, good morning, everybody. I really appreciate you faithful early risers. Uh, just uh, two or three weeks ago, we had, between the two services, we had like 260 people, most of which were in the second service. So invite your friends to come to the early service or really help out with uh, the crowd in the second service. Uh, hey, you know, if you looked at today's title, oh, okay. You have, there you go, there you go. You might be thinking, uh, yeah, I'm looking ahead to the end of this series on worry. I mean, Kent, how much can you get out of five letters about worry? Yeah, but if you look at the whole text in the, at the end of chapter 6 of Matthew, uh, you'll see that Jesus emphasizes this whole topic of worry Simply because it is so common. Think about it. Is anybody here who never worries? I mean, we're all subject to this. Uh, This is the problem that we all have of our relationship with things of this world. And for some, it's focusing on accumulating a lot of this stuff. And for others, it's worrying about, am I going to have enough stuff? And Jesus analyzes both of those sides. So, uh, there's the passage for today that we're going to take a look at. And uh, you'll see here that in verse 34, Jesus finally ends the discussion on on worry, but somewhat surprisingly. Okay, let me ask, how many of you are familiar with Handel's Messiah, especially the, the Hallelujah Chorus? You know, okay, just about everybody, and you should. This is one of the greatest compo- compositions that we've ever had. And if you remember, it builds and builds and builds. We call that a crescendo. And it goes, for he shall reign forever and ever. Alleluia, alleluia, and forever and ever, alleluia, alleluia. And finally, there's this pause suddenly. And as I understand, this is looking forward. See, all that stuff before was from the Old Testament. And it looks forward to the coming of Christ with the final alleluia. Now that is a climax. That's a climax. That we just came out of. We hear this often during the Christmas season. But Jesus doesn't stop. If you remember verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Can you think of a better climax than that? I mean, it seems like anything after that verse would be anticlimactic. But when you think about this, he goes on and he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, the future, because the future will be anxious for itself. Now, I think we can be pretty sure that Jesus is not messing up a great climax. Instead, this is not a rehash of what he's already taught. This is an extension of his teaching. But 
why does he have to end on a negative? Well, if you look at the verse, you'll see that up to this point, he's been dealing with the real world of worry in the present. And now he turns to the future. In fact, the rest of our lives. Now, Jesus really knows us, and he knows our problems quite well. And here he forces us to see that worry is a force. And to understand it, we've got to realize its power. We usually consider worry to be simply a failure to apply our faith. And it is that. But it is so much more. It grips and controls us. And if we fail to see it for what it is, it can actually defeat us. If it cannot drag us down by being anxious today, it will simply take us to tomorrow and encourage us to worry about that. Have you ever tried to counsel somebody overtaken by anxiety, perhaps a constant worrier? You know, you can explain to them that, that God is there, You can explain to them how it really doesn't help to worry. And then they'll come back and say, yes, but. You know, that person may genuinely want to be relieved from worry, but the worry itself does not want to be relieved. This is what Jesus means when he says tomorrow will be anxious for itself. He personalizes worry. And recognizes it as a power that can control a person, even a believer. So the worrier may say, yes, I know I should trust God more now, but what about tomorrow or next week or next year? Worry has an active imagination. It comes up with all kinds of possibilities and eventualities. It is important to us. It can transport us into the future to the point that we are burdened down by things that are purely conjecture, all imaginary. We talked last time about laying awake at night, wanting desperately to go to sleep. Okay, anybody had that experience? Okay, you know, the only thing that I've found that really works when that happens is when I finally convince myself that I'm not going to go to sleep, I get up and I write those things down, the to-dos or the things I've got to take care of, and then I read the Word until my eyes get tired, and then maybe I can get back to sleep when I lay back down again. And this may come from even demon possession. It can come from Satan's temptations using our times of weakness, or maybe just a natural anxiety developed over time. But whatever the source we must come to see that we are fighting a very, very powerful foe. Let's get some perspective here. The context here is, first of all, Jesus says, this is all in the context of his previous teaching, all of which is still applicable. In effect, he's saying that a faith-filled life lived day to day is challenging enough. Why do we need to worry about tomorrow? It achieves nothing. It's a waste of emotional and sometimes physical energy over things that may never happen at all. To worry about the future in the present is to cripple yourself today 
lessen your efficiency today and thereby tomorrow as well. And it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, how many of you folks recognize this group of wise sages? Bill, who are these people? This is one of the lesser-known groups of the 60s and the 70s. These are the grassroots, okay? I'm not sure, but I think I know what grass stood for. All right? Now, I remember one of their songs. It went like this. Sha-la-la-la-la-la, live for today, but don't worry about tomorrow. And when I grew out of my foolish teen years into my wise 20s, I concluded that these folks were filled, their heads were filled with mush. That this was ridiculous. What a philosophy. Live for today, don't worry about tomorrow. But now that I've heard and understand the words of Jesus, you know, it may be by accident, but they stumbled on something that's pretty wise. Now let's understand where we are here. Because of the fall in Genesis 3, we know that we all live and eat by the sweat of the brow. In short, our lives are going to be filled with labor and hardships and trials. The question is, how do we respond to life? And he exhorts us to not focus on the things that could happen to us in the future. That's a crushing exercise. Rather, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We will have our rations of challenges, trials, and troubles every single day. Some are day-to-day, like busy schedules and, and uh, crazy kids, but others just occasionally, like sickness and flat tires. Every day in God's economy should be lived as it comes, warts and all. Jesus has given us his instructions on how to deal with today. Don't worry. Trust God's promises that he'll get you through it. Remember Mary and Martha, our good friends? Well, in John 11, they send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, really sick. And they they beg him to come. Well, Jesus holds off, and after Lazarus has died, he says "Okay," to his disciples, okay, let's go back to Jerusalem. And they remind him that he was. they just tried to stone him there. And his response, his rebuke to his disciples was a question. He asked them, are there not just 12 hours in a day? In other words, he was saying, live one day at a time. Take its challenges without worrying about tomorrow. Tomorrow will come, and when it comes, we will have our ration of trouble for that day. Now, The same thing applies to mistakes we've made in the past, yesterday. Certainly, we can learn from our mistakes. And some require that we make things right. We confess, seek forgiveness in prayer and in practice. But if we do that and then dwell on those mistakes, lay awake at night worrying about why we made them, they can cripple us, exhausting our emotional and our physical strength. We can wake up tired and depressed, leading to more mistakes which can lead to us to worry about making more mistakes tomorrow. It kind of becomes a vicious cycle. So the wise and common sense thing to do is simply not to worry about yesterday, today, or tomorrow. Just live for today. However, can't stop there. We must learn to rely upon God, not just in general, 
but for the particular things that happen to us in our lives. We must take those matters to them as they arise. Don't try to anticipate God asking yourself what He wants of of you tomorrow or the next month or the next year. Try never to get ahead of God. Some of you may have heard this phrase, forever and a day. That's a hallmark phrase, to be sure. But it's also a way for us to remember our relationship with God. You know, in one sense, we commit to God at salvation forever. But in another sense, we must commit to Him every day. In one sense, He gives us at salvation the grace that we need for all of life. But in another sense, He gives us grace each and every day. Each day our attitude must be to accept the fact that we will face challenges in the coming day and know that God will provide the grace to get through that day. He'll be with me always. In fact, He's the only one on which I can count. Therefore, I must learn to leave the future completely in His hands. The uh, believers in Hebrews uh, 13 were facing troubles. So the author gives reassurance. He said, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Then he gives the reason for this this assurance. Christ Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Did he get you through yesterday? He will today, and he will tomorrow. Instead of worrying about tomorrow, focus on the changeless Christ. Paul put it another way in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist. But with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. That's a promise that we can all cling to. It's certain for our whole future. So to sum up this part, we can say that we must learn to walk with God, taking each day by itself, not worrying about what happened yesterday or what will happen tomorrow. To to do otherwise is a lack of faith in Him. The Word makes clear that He will always be there to meet our problems. He knows all about it. He knows all about us. Therefore, be assured and confident in Him. Turn to Him, and you're going to find Him there. Now, as in most things in scriptures, we've got to have some practical balance here. Okay? Some may have a question or two about this approach. Is it wrong, based upon this passage, for a Christian to save for the future? What about life insurance? Budgeting? Is it a lack of faith to plan for tomorrow? Well, we tried to address this a couple of months ago. Uh, When the familiar King James Version says, take no thought, it does not mean do not think. Okay? Whether it's about providing for our families today or for the future. It's simply we are not to worry. We're not to be anxious. Or to trust in those seen things, the things of the world, because God has made specific promises for us. And just as the birds do not sow Just because the birds don't have to sow, reap, and gather in barns doesn't mean that we're not going to have to. 
In fact, it is that kind of forethought and preparation that is commanded to us as good stewards of God's provision. Remember, even the birds have to get out of their nest and hunt for food. So we are pretty much destined to work much of our lives. Therefore, it's reasonable, legitimate, and biblical to say, budget, provide for some contingencies, and to plan. The point that Jesus makes here is that we are never to obsess or worry about those future things to the point that we allow those concerns to dominate and control our thoughts. If that happens, we've simply crossed the line from the reasonable thought and planning to being controlled by anxiety. Another way to put this is that we should never be so concerned for the future that we diminish our usefulness or effectiveness in the present. You know, if you look around, most of you, I think, you've seen that there are lots and lots of needs out there right now, whether it's serving in the church or in a parachurch organization or it's taking care of your kids or it's reaching out to the lost. There are needs all over the place. They require not only time, but attention and effort. But some folks are so focused on the future and living for the future that they have no time or energy to invest on those things that need attention today. So in effect, you might have seen people like this, the cool, calm, wealthy businessman who's focused on accumulating as much as he can for the future yet pays no attention to the needs of those around him and his own loved ones today, is guilty of being anxious about tomorrow, even though you don't see it on his face. On the other hand, one who plans and takes reasonable steps for the future, whether it's saving or insurance or healthy habits or whatever, at the same time serves others and lives life fully in the present, is following Christ's command. Now, there's been some mis- misinterpretation of this passage uh, over time, and it's caused some problems and some divisions among Christians. Some believe that Christians should make no provision for the future. Other believe, others believe that churches should not take up a collection. But this misinterpretation is a result of not taking the whole counsel of God. Uh, Paul makes clear The church is to take up collections. He gives detailed instructions for the church. As Bill taught two weeks ago, the New Testament announces collections for the saints. Now, if you live in this world, it is true that appeals come from everywhere, whether for the poor, the persecuted, for missionaries, for veterans, for disaster relief, diseases, even cats and dogs. I mean, you see it everywhere, and you can get overwhelmed. So it takes discernment to know who to trust, uh, whether to give, how much to give. At Lion and Lamb, you might have noticed, we don't pass the plate. We instead rely upon the conscience and thankfulness of individuals to give through the boxes. There's one here and one in the basement. Some people are uncomfortable even being taught about giving. But... Part of being committed to a local body is giving. And it's through your generosity that Lion and Lamb is able to function and help others pay with their needs and to pay the light bill. This whole area of uh, what do you do with this verse, I have a true confession to make. Uh, I've always believed that it was appropriate to teach about giving. But in the past, 
quite a few years ago, I had a real problem. I bristled when I heard fund appeals, whether it was on the radio, you know, the share the begathons that I called them back then, or even in churches, despite what Paul teaches about the church's responsibility to inform. Uh, I reasoned, and I looked at men like Hudson Taylor and George Mueller, and these were men of God who never asked for funds from anybody. They simply prayed. And God provided miraculously. For Mueller, it was his orphanages. For Hudson, his missionary work in China. Uh, my reason was that this was obviously a greater act of faith. But I've since come to realize that appeals are clearly given in Scripture in order for people to know of needs. Now, how do you reconcile the two? You know, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that the Holy Spirit gives certain gifts to not all, but certain people. One of those is the gift of faith. This is not saving faith, but I believe this is the faith that Mueller and Hudson possessed. The purpose of this gift of faith is clearly to bring glory to God when He provides for needs without asking any others. When someone with the gift of faith prays and God provides without request to others, it's not a miracle. It doesn't defy the laws of nature. But it is what we call providential. God provides. In other words, if we look at Scripture and we look at all this, we understand that both ways of maintaining God's work, both asking for appeals and simply praying without asking for appeals, are allowed in Scripture. George Whitfield was a great man of God in, a, in, the, in the early America who had an orphanage, but he went out and he asked for funds from God's people. So, if you have the gift of faith, use it for God's glory. If you don't, it's okay to ask for a particular need. You know, sometimes we're required by law to maintain like insurance uh, for, for the pr- protection of others like your car liability insurance and that sort of thing, we're required to obey our authorities. But if you're convinced that God would not want you to have some discretionary protection, maybe even insurance for something, others should not condemn you for your faith. But if you have no such conviction, others should not accuse you of a lack of faith. Each person should be fully persuaded in his own mind. And please do not condemn one another. Okay, we want to go on now to a summary of all the things we've tried to study about worry. Some may argue that this Jesus' teaching about worrying is really ridiculous or maybe even cruel when we consider all the suffering and the pain and the poverty in the world. But we need to remember here that he is teaching us just us. This is not for everybody. This is only for believers. We can sometimes suffer for our own offenses, our sins, rather than righteousness. So the promises here are only for God's people and do not apply when we stray from his righteousness. Well, what about the righteous Christian who suffers? Jesus told us that blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake. 
So I think we can be confident that God uses suffering, even with righteous Christians, for his own purposes. Uh, in 197 A.D., Tertullian uh, wrote, that, wrote to the Roman governor pleading that he stop persecuting Christians. And he said this, The more often we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. So I think it's fair to say that our own country came into existence as a result of persecution of Christians in England. And no doubt, God works in our smaller lives as well. And sometimes that means we will suffer for His plan and His glory, sometimes even when we are righteous, even maybe because we are righteous. Now, getting down to our lives, we learn that worry is a result of being distracted by worldliness when we don't maintain a, a clear, a single eye on our Father. Remember the a fortiori arguments. If God gave you life, the greater gift, does it make sense to worry and fret that he will deny himself and his own creation of its very existence and frustrate his own purposes? Yeah. You must sow, reap, and gather in barns. That's work. Provide for your own because God has decreed that is the lot of mankind. But Jesus promises us that there will always be enough to keep us going, guaranteed, until our purpose here is completed. So if we start with this first principle, that God gave us life and all we have for a purpose, and if we think through that to draw the logical conclusion that He will provide all we need for that purpose, our worry should disappear so that we can walk in peace and thankfulness with Him. Another point in summary is that worry always involves a failure to grasp and apply our faith. We shouldn't see worry as something inside of us that just naturally starts to grow. We must apply it if we want it to grow. We learned earlier that saving faith is by definition what is necessary for eternal life. However, if our faith, our saving faith, never grows, Jesus calls that just little faith. And if that saving faith is not increased, the baby Christian is vulnerable to live a life defeated with worry and anxiety, which is hardly different from most unbelievers. Our faith applies to all facets of life. It's not just what happens here on Sunday morning in this building. Our faith is primarily thinking. We need to study God's Word and understand its lessons and logic. We need to look at the birds, the lilies, and the grass and think about how God provides for them. And then we need to understand that He will provide for us and conclude from there how to respond and live. We need to be thermostat Christians who use the promises of God to maintain self-control of our thoughts and actions rather than just reacting to our circumstances like thermometer Christians. Our faith is taking the promises and principles of, of the Word at face value. We must understand that God does not change. God is the same as He was 2,000 years ago, and His promises, instructions, and commands are absolute and timeless. Our faith is understanding the implications of salvation from the perspective of our Father. Our Father has unchanging purposes, great love and concern for His children, 
And our Father is a mighty God who, as Paul tells us, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power, the faith at work within us. Well, let's take a, 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 one more look at how to increase faith and put an end to worry. First of all, stop whining about what you shall eat, drink, or wear. You know, that only confirms to others that you're no different than them. And it's contagious. Yeah, it is appropriate at times to let others know of needs, but never in a way that betrays that you do not trust your Father to provide for you. Yeah, we learned that the Gentiles and un- unbelievers have no frame or, of reference from which to view trials. But we do. Christians should exercise discipline, self-control, gravity, and trust because we see everything from the context of God's will and eternity. Our Father knows what we need. It is essential that we believe on Him. But if we are to increase our faith, we must believe Him when He tells us that He will never leave us nor forsake us. We must develop, grow, and perfect our relationship with our Father Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of of God. That means to seek Him diligently. That means to set our affections on things above, not on the things that we see and the unbelievers see here on earth. But He goes on from there. He says, seek first His righteousness. To do that, we must obey Him, which requires we must know what He commands, which requires that we must read our Bibles. The more righteous or Christ-like that we become, the greater will be our faith and our reliance upon God as our Father. And then, rather than the seen things that the Gentiles seek, this will increase our stability and decrease our worry. The child of the Father who sets his affections on things above and daily hungers after righteousness not only has greater faith, but also a definite, specific promise. Remember, all these things that the Gentiles are seeking are going to be added unto you. Just don't focus on them. Finally, the most practical point that I want to make from today's teaching about our faith is simply that we must decide to refuse to have anxious thoughts. Some may say that's easier said than done. But that's really what it gets down to. You know, the psalmist said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? We need to talk to ourselves when we're tempted by worry. We need to say, no, I refuse to worry. I have done what I believe God would have me do. and I'm not going to allow worry to consume me. I know I can trust my Father today and I know I can trust Him tomorrow. Faith is refusing to be burdened by anxiety and worry because we have cast our burden upon our Father, whose promises are sure. Now, I've been saying that these teachings are only for believers. If you do not know that you are saved, these teachings can be for you, because He has a promise for you. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and accept His work on the cross as payment for your sins, just like He paid for our sins, you will be saved. And understand that His promises are the anchor of life. 
Hebrews 6 tells us they were talking about God's promises to Abraham. And it says here, since he, God, had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You know, there's a song that's been performed by, I think, probably several different performers uh, over the years. I just want to read a few verses from that. I have journeyed through the long, dark night out on the open sea. By faith alone, sight unknown, and yet his eyes were watching me. The anchor holds, though the ship's been battered. The anchor holds, though the sails are torn. I have fallen on my knees as I face the raging seas. The anchor holds in spite of the storm. Father, in Your infinite grace, give us grace and wisdom to apply these simple principles to our life, to end worry about yesterday, today, and tomorrow, so that we might focus on You And you might receive all the glory. In Jesus' name.